Are you in a rut? Stressed by the demands of your personal, professional, and social lives? Join lifestyle guru Pauline Brown right now for Tastemakers. That's really where people can really make the celebrated individual the centerpiece. She invites her friends to share tips of the trade and new ideas for bringing out the best in you. My real passion is style, and not just style, but design, beauty, all things aesthetic. Turn the mundane into the memorable with Pauline Brown on Tastemakers. Hello, and welcome back to Tastemakers. This is Pauline Brown. As the world recovers from COVID-19, and boy, am I happy that it is recovering, at least our part of the world is, one of the most highly anticipated returns is that of Broadway. I never thought I would miss live theater as much as I do right now. And, uh, and I wanna not only get excited about going back to the theater, but I wanna even get excited about thinking about the theater. I've invited on today's show a friend, he's an expert on the topic of theater. He is an award-winning Broadway producer. His name is Ron Simons. Uh, he is going to give us a peek behind the curtain, so to speak, as to what to expect from the theater world in the months ahead and also uh, a peek into how things actually work, all the things that we maybe were curious about but never quite knew. Um, a little bit more about Ron. Uh, well, first of all, thank you for joining us, Ron. Really, really great to see you. Good to be seen and not viewed, as my granddaddy used to say. <laughs> Good to see you too. And by the way, I can see you. Our listeners can only hear you, but you have such a good <laughs> voice uh, that you'll have to imagine how good looking he is to go with that good voice. Um, so a couple things, uh, as if you aren't already impressed by the voice, uh, Ron is a five-time Tony Award nominated and four-time Tony winning producer. He's the CEO of a production company, Simon Says. Uh, it's Simon Says Entertainment, aptly named after him, Mr. Simon. Um, he, uh, his Broadway credits include the hit Ain't Too Proud, The Life and Times of Temptations, as well as the Tony-winning productions of Jitney, Porgy and Bess, A Gentleman's Guide, and Vanya and Sonia and Masha and Spike. That's a mouthful. Um, <laughs> and he also has, um, oh, he's been involved in so many different productions, but I'm going to throw out um, two more that are classics, The Gin Game and A Streetcar Named Desire. And he's got a really exciting one we're going to talk about during the show. It's coming in the 21-22 uh, season. It's Thoughts of a Colored Man. I'm also gonna add that uh, Mr. Simons is the highest African-American Tony award-winning producer of all time. And he prides himself right, rightfully of bringing uh, lots of diversity, much needed diversity to the stage. I wanna talk about that as well. And the last point I wanna mention, which uh, is interesting, he's one of the few people I've ever met who has two masters. I've met many people who have two masters, but one is an MBA from Columbia and one is an MFA, so a master's in arts from University of Washington. So he is, I, I'm, I'm assuming from those two degrees, truly um, a, a, a right brain and a left brain person in one. Am I right, Ron? Absolutely. Okay. I love it. As a left-handed person who uh, went to the Wharton Business School, I guess I am right and left too but not politically. I'll stay on one <laughs> side of the sphere for that. Uh, okay, so let's, let's just start with you. So how'd you get into theater? Was this something you well, always enjoyed as a child? Um, yeah, my mom used to take me to theater in Detroit and we would see touring shows. That was amazing. And we also 
Well, I, in high school, started doing productions, you know, and uh, I went to a school called the University of Detroit Jesuit uh, Academy in high school, and I was a member of the Harlequins, so that's when I first got to be on stage, and I loved it. And that's sort of where the bug bit me. So by the time I got to college and I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life, I was trying to figure out between the two things that I loved. One was technology, talking about right and left brain, which was writing software for computers. And the other was theater arts, doing plays, reading plays, being all about plays. Um, so when I graduated, I actually had a choice of going to... Um, grad school to study acting or going into the industry in computer science development. And for a bunch of different reasons, um, I decided to go and be a software development engineer. Um, I did that for a number of years. And then one day I said, you know, I don't want to defer this dream any longer. I want to be an actor. So I enrolled at University of Washington, got my MFA, came back here and started acting. Mm -hmm. And uh, I became a company member at the Classical Theater of Harlem Uptown. And I got an agent. I started doing film and television and um, commercials, et cetera, et cetera. And then in 09, I decided that there was a lot of mediocrity happening in the industry. And I thought, well, hell, I can do mediocre. In fact, I think I can do a little bit better than mediocre. So I said, I'm going to produce. No clue what that meant. No idea what they did. No clue how they made money. Did they make money? I don't know. So I just literally put that out there and I told everyone, I'm a producer. And then people started sending me scripts and plays and blah, 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 blah. And I thought I was going to do, a, you know, something off-Broadway, something, something maybe, we'll see. Ended up doing um, a film, which, <laughs> which um, ended up being... Uh, a nominate, nominee for the Grand Jury Prize at Sundance called Night Catches Us with um, Anthony Mackie and Kerry Washington. This is, of course, was pre-Scandal and pre-The Falcon uh, and Marvel. And, uh, and then I was off to the races. Soon after that, I did my first Broadway show, which was Porgy and Bess. Mm. And that's where we got our first Tony. And, you know, I've just been running the race since then. So my impression of producers is um, unlike say directors who sit between you know the operational side of the business and the artistic side of the business my impression of the producers is that they are on the business side that they have a budget they have investors uh, that it doesn't necessarily control the craft is that not not the case and, and 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 if it is to some extent the case do you feel as a former actor and i'm sure very impassioned still actor. Do you feel frustrated being on the producer side sometimes? That's a good, actually a good question. Um, but I will start by saying there are two different types of producers. There are, and this is true of film as well, because I do film. Um, there is the creative producer and then there is the, um, I'm going to say the business producer. Now, every producer has to have some of both. The question is, what is your mix? Some people are really strong in business and have a decent sense about the craft and so forth and so on. And some people are really into the craft and the storytelling and they can get by on the business. And the thing is, is that if you're a producer, you can have both um, because there are people that you work with, you bring into your circle to help you on both sides. So um, that means that when you, for Broadway, for example, when you bring a show to Broadway, you hire a general manager and their job is the business 
of that show. They do the hiring, they do the, the if there's need to be the firing, they do all the business agreements with the attorney, you know, they handle casting. So they are the COO, whereas the producer is the CEO. I, in that mixture, I think that I'm kind of 50-50, maybe more 60-40, leaning into the artistic because I am a storyteller as an actor. So I really appreciate story. I tell people all the time, you know, forget all the awards that I've gotten and stuff like that. I don't know a whole lot, but I do know good story when I see it. And so that comes from my being a storyteller and being an actor. So I'm blessed to have that. But of course, you know, I spent a number of years, you know, in management and doing business. So I have that that comes along with. Um, but I think a good producer should have a good chunk of experience in both areas to really be effective because it does you no good if you can really bring a show in on budget on time, but the show's story is weak and no one cares. <laughs> yeah, so, that would not be a good show. Not a good show. Not a good uh, show. <laughs> so talk to me about a story. Um, because I wrote a book, I was an English major, I recognize stories when they're in print. Uh, I certainly recognize them as a viewer if I'm watching good television versus bad television. Is it different as, as a Broadway producer? Do you, is, is what makes a good story different than, say, as a film producer? Or is a good story a good story no matter what the media? I think the good, a good story is a good story is a good story. Now, that being said, there are a number of ways in my head because I'm always thinking about uh, cross pollination, right? So I, I find products that are going to be great plays, but I can also see it as a film or I'll see a film and go, Oh my God, this would be a great television show. Mm -hmm. Or here is a book. This would make a great musical. Right. And that's really about that secret sauce that the producers have in their head to envision how this property can best be told. And also from a business point of view, um, they can support one another. And by that, that, I mean that, you know, if the book is best selling, then it has the brand. So that when you put them up with the play, people will go, Oh, right. You know, whatever the, 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 the book is. So I, I might, I think that what good producers do is figure out, a, is it a good story? And B, if it is a good story, where would it best be to bring this story to the world? I saw Hamilton three times on Broadway. Um, mm. and, and I still didn't tire of it. I was so excited when it was coming to the big screen or to the little screen in the case of my living room. Mm -hmm. I didn't think it was, I didn't think that the, the spirit or the um, magic of it came through. And I thought, was it just because I got jaded? But I wasn't hearing other people buzz about it either. No, I think that that, I don't know if it would have been more impactful if it had been on the big screen. But honestly, there are a number of shows that do really, really well on stage to be in the room with the people. Because that show, like a number of shows, the success of that show depends on the, the call and response of the actors and the audience. Mm. Because the audience feeds the actors, the actors feed the audience, and then it becomes this magical thing that you can't really formulate in some like logical way. It's an artistic call and response that that's happening on stage, and you just can't get that in your living room. So, mm. you know, some, now on the other hand, I don't know if you've ever seen uh, I think it was Chicago. Mm -hmm. um, the I, I the, loved the, the movie. I loved the movie. <laughs> loved the movie. But here's the difference. 
what you saw in Hamilton, it was a capture of a production in the theater, as opposed to Chicago, which was in, created from the very beginning to be an adaptation for a film. So everything about it was cinematic. And so they captured all that cinematic stuff in a way that a theater uh, director might not see because they don't have all those tools at, at their disposal. If you're doing a film, you can do advanced close-ups, you can do you know wide shots, you can stream in, you can, I mean, it's, the, it's, it's, a, it's a greater palette of colors that you can use to create that story. Mm. Well, so we have to take a quick break, but when we're back, one of the things I want to get into are all these what I'll call hidden design elements, lighting, sound, you know, these things that, that the craftspeople bring, uh, bring to the theater that make for an experience that doesn't always translate to these other media. And because I think those are often the, um, the, the best kept secrets. Um, and, uh, and, and I have so much more to cover. I also want to talk about uh, the issue of diversity, yourself being a pioneer in uh, bringing more diverse faces, not just to the stage, but to all the people working on behalf of the, uh, of the productions. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of progress that's been made. There's a lot more progress to be made. So we'll talk about that. Uh, we're going to talk about what we all can look forward to in this post-COVID era. So stay with us. I'm talking to Ron Simons award-winning producer, a very talented actor as well. Stay with us. You're listening to Tastemakers. We will be right back. Now, more with Pauline Brown on Tastemakers on Sirius XM Stars. Hello, welcome back to Tastemakers. This is Pauline Brown. I'm here today with award-winning Broadway producer, Ron Simons. He has um, worked on a host of things. He also has uh, an exciting production coming up as soon as not just the world opens again, but Broadway opens again. Um, just so before, before we go any further, talk to me about Thoughts of a Colored Man, your next production. Thoughts of a Colored Man is this uh, one-act drama written by this hot new playwright who has been developing this play over a number of years. It is a story of seven African-American men um, in a gentrifying neighborhood in Brooklyn. It's a New York story. Um, it's it's has all the, the markings of great theater. It's funny. It's tragic. It's inspiring. It's heartbreaking. You know, it's beautifully textured. And by that, I mean, it's not just scenes of this person talking and that person responding, this person talking and another person. It's textured in that it has, yes, it has scenes. It also has monologues. It has, you know, sometimes breaks the fourth wall. It has movement. It has spoken word. It has poetry because the author got his start in spoken word. And so he brings all of that to bear to this play. But what's most impressive about this play that I love is the right play at the right time, because in this anti-racism movement that we're in right now, um, and this real focus on bringing BIPOC voices to bear, this is the play that talks about the inner life of African-American men. And given that we lost George Floyd, um, his voice has been silenced. But here on stage, we have essentially seven George Floyds mm. sharing their lives, their loves, their dreams, their trials, tribulations, you know, all the things that make them the same human being that makes all of us a human being. So this story is strong in its universal appeal because while it's set within the lives of seven African-American men, um, it is those men are pursuing the same dreams and ideals that people who are not of African descent 
mm -hmm. um, are pursuing. So it's a universal story that is going to have a wide appeal to a wide variety of audiences. And because it's a story that is raw and authentic and mm -hmm. clear, um, it's going to break through, in my opinion. I think those people, and I think particularly younger people, will be able to really understand um, and really um, connect with the story because it is a voice of a young man. But at the same time, you know, old folks like me can also appreciate it too because guess what? We were kids too. And the audience, the characters on stage are uh, a wide range of types. We have a person on stage who is about my age, a little older, right? So that character, wisdom. Um, so I think it's going to be a great story for right now. I don't, I, when I took on this project, I did not have any idea, of course, that we would be in this anti-racism movement. I had no idea that BIPOC would be getting this kind of attention. So it's really a godsend that I, that the universe came to bring this project to bear when it did. Now, it's a great show. It's a great yeah, show. I mean, there have been other um, shows that have expressed the voice of the African-American man. I'm thinking of Raisin in the Sun. What is different now? And I don't mean about the circumstances, the fact that, that there's a big demand for more representation, but in terms of the actual story, what are you hearing in these characters, these seven characters now, that if uh, we had seen some performance a few decades ago, would not have been part of the, the reality we're in? Well, of course, that's that's a classic. I love Raisin in the Sun. Um, uh, I've not yet played the leak actor uh, character, but maybe one day soon. <laughs> I think the difference is, is that this is not trying to represent African-American men as a monolith, mm -hmm. but at the same time, it's not trying to be, you know, the voice of one man. What makes this interesting is, is that ha it has representation from a wide range of African-American men in our society. As I said, they have, you know, they have names that speak to, you know, that is symbolic of who they are and what their point of view is. They, names like lust and love and wisdom and happiness and, and anger. So you have a kaleidoscope of characters to give you a sense of, and it's really just the top of the iceberg of who we are as the 21st century African-American man. And you, there's been no other story that I've ever seen on Broadway like that. There have been stories that have featured African-American men, a soldier's play comes to mind, um, but we don't have, we haven't had the luxury of the, uh, you know, being able to hear and see the inner life of men like that. I think with The Raisin of the Sun, you got a little of that, but that was just one person. That's right. And they, we are so much more than any one representation. So we're not trying to do every African-American man and everyone, but we're trying to certainly do more than one and to give you a sense of the diversity within our own community of African-American men, right? So I think that's important because if you look at the people who have been, you know, the African-American men and women who have been murdered, they've been from a variety of backgrounds, socioeconomic and otherwise. So I think it's important for, it was important for the writer and what led me to really love this story is that it really does talk about diversification within the African-American male community. And that's important because we are more than just one thing. Yeah. We need to get away from that whole monolithic idea. Uh, fascinating. I'm, you're, you're making me actually very eager to see it myself. Um, I, I also wanted to talk this week. There's a big news story that everyone, whether it's the actors uh, or uh, the network, uh, is pulling back from the Golden Globes because 
despite the outpouring of, you know, of demands in these last couple of years, it is not making enough progress toward diversity. That, that at least is the allegation, and I'm assuming that that's backed up by, you know, by the, 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 the representation. Why, why is it taking so long? And, and is this going to be the tipping point where we might not see the Golden Globes this year because it wasn't just a matter of people, you know, wearing a little pin on their label that, that not enough action was taken? Is this a turning point for you? Or is it just another symbol that things don't move at the pace they should? Yes and yes. Um, and that is to say that change doesn't happen without pressure. And if you look at movements in the past, um, civil rights movement, the Me Too movement, Black Lives Matter movement, there's a time when there is intense scrutiny, intense focus, intense attention on whatever the issue is, and everyone jumps on board and you know, everyone has an initiative. They do some press releases, they talk about how they're in, you know, instrumental in changing the world. And it's very important and they are doing real things in the moment, but then the time frame moves and the significance of those, or rather the attention and focus on those issues starts to wane. Mm -hmm. So for any movement to continue, to build and grow, there must be accountability. That means, you know, there needs to be an ongoing pressure from um, society to say, we need a change, we want change, show us how you're changing. And now I have to say that this has been, during my lifetime, I wasn't quite constant enough you know, in the civil, early civil rights days, but in my lifetime, I've never seen so many people who seem to want to stand up and be heard about equality and justice in this country. It has just been blowing my mind. And I'm seeing it, you know, in my industry in Broadway. If you look at the theater productions that are coming down, there are going to be more, I dare say, more productions that are have themed around African Americans and people of color than 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 we've ever that we'll ever have ever seen in the past. Mm -hmm. Hopefully we'll see continue to see this diversity. But I have two shows, you know, that are of about African-American men. One is about African-American women, and they both have births on Broadway. Mm -hmm. You know, there was a time when, when the mindset was, oh, someone would bring a project to bear. They would say, well, you, we've already got our African-American play for this year, but thanks, right? Mm -hmm. As if there's only room for one, one voice, right? And so this is going to be a testament, I think, that good stories win the day. Regardless of how many are of a certain about a certain culture, about a certain time frame, the question is: Is it a good story? And people care, like theater owners, they care about bringing more diverse stories to bear. They are literally opening their doors to bring in more diverse storytellers, which is a boon for the entire industry. So my only thing is, I want to see this continue. How do we continue? to make sure that what I've seen now happens, continues in five years, 10 years, 20 years, and it continues to expand. Right, yeah. One of the things that worries me, you know, uh, I had very much the same embrace uh, when uh, we first started, the, not we, but the society uh, kicked off this whole Me Too movement. But when I look at how much actual change, you know, there's still a lot of tokenism you know, people yeah. turn to, you know, the one or two people who were um, lauded at the Oscars or the one or two women who make it to the seat, you know, suite. And but 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 it, when you look at the aggregate numbers, it's still pretty paltry. 
And when you look at what really is happening on the ground, it hasn't been as much change. So, um, and I say is that because there isn't the same level of anger by women, maybe, I, I don't know, or do, do these things just, just take time? And sometimes they take that kind of persistent pressure. As well, that's true. I would, yeah, I would say it does. Like, you know, we often talk about the pipeline. You know, I want to be able to hire a black woman sound designer, right? But the fact of the matter is, there are not enough black women sound designers who have the expertise and the experience to drop them in to a Broadway production. So it takes time to develop that kind of representation. And what we have an industry have not been doing is not been feeding the pipeline. So we should not be surprised that there are very few people of color represented off stage, or in that case on stage. So th th this is why the long game has to be important. This is why the long game and accountability comes into play. Because let's say I'm willing to acknowledge that it takes two or three years to get people to a certain place where they can be you know, part of the, have the expertise to be part of this industry. But by the same token, someone must be asking in three years, what do your numbers look like? Mm -hmm. How many interns do you have? How many mentors do you have? Mm -hmm. What does the pipeline look like so that in two or three or four or five or six years, these people will be part of our, our, our community? Because mm -hmm. that's the difference. That's where the difference is going to be made. It's going to be made by having a long game and accountability. That's the only way we can ensure that things, there's a fundamental change in the industry and, yep. and, and, and society in general as well. Yep, yep. So just switching gears to theater as we'll know it in the call it the latter half of this year, the latter quarter of this year into 2022. Uh, what it, what's going to what's going to feel different to a theater goer? Uh, we're still going to be sitting next to each other in the theater with tight close proximity. Are we going to have to wear masks throughout the production? What have they set the the, the criteria yet? They have not published the full set of criteria, but here's what I know. I know that there are measures so that people do not have to have as much physical contact with one another. So long, uh, long uh, gone now are the days of the paper tickets. It's going to be electronic, so you don't have to worry about touching and exchanging and that kind of thing. I know that the theaters have installed better air filtration systems to clean the air um, going forward. Then and it will be a hundred percent occupancy. So if 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 like you, so many people have just been missing the live theater so much, and they want to rush in, you will be sitting next to someone who you don't know. Mm -hmm. So the question then becomes: Have you gotten your vaccine? I have that other person gotten that? There you go. There <laughs> you go. You are part of the solution, right? Because you represent. Um, a, a very no threat to anyone physically because you've been inoculated. So what I worry about um, is how we as an industry um, will take extra measures. I don't know if that means taking temperatures, which you've probably seen in, in a number of locations where can I take your temperature before you go in? I am almost 100% sure that masks will be required, mm -hmm. you know, at all times. Mm -hmm. And the good thing about different shows, like Thoughts of a Colored Man, it's a 90-minute show. So mm -hmm. the people come in, they sit down. The next time they get up, they're leaving the theater. They're not going to the restroom. They're not going to have a, you know, a backup you know, for cocktails at the bar. It's mm -hmm. come in and it's go out. So that's, that's for our production. That's great because we don't even have to worry about that congestion that you'll see in theaters in various places. But 
I I feel very confident that as these numbers continue to increase, and by that I mean the numbers in terms of um, vaccines, that it will be a far safer experience than it would have been, say, now or a month from now. Because the theaters, the shows that are going to be opening, they're not going to open until September. Those are the earliest ones that have said they're going to be opening. Um, and then we're going to be opening from there all the way into next year. Mm -hmm. So I have one show that's going to be opening in the fall, which is Thoughts of a Colored Man, and then another one for Colored Girls, which will be in 2022. Mm -hmm. um, what, you know, one other thing I want to ask about is um, the, dr the, the brain drain from New York. There's a lot of creative yeah. talent that have not been able to make a living. And if mm -hmm. historically, when they went on auditions, they would also um, be waiters or bartenders. That business has all but shut down for the last year. It, are we going to see a change in the talent mix? Are those people in any way reluctant to come back, at least in the early stages of the recovery? I think that there is, there, I think honestly, when I talk to people, that in the same way there's a hunger for audience members to see shows there's a hunger for actors to be on stage everyone i know every single person in this industry is ready to get back to work so i don't think there's going to be a drain on talent um and i think they're going to come back into the city for either work as necessary or to do the events that New York City has to offer. Because let's be honest, you can only get Broadway in New York City. There are a number of restaurants that you can only get in New York City. There, there are the, the museums that museums that are in New York City are only available here. So it will continue to be a central figure of culture for our country. Um, and I think that, let's be honest, as people are leaving, more people are coming in. Every year, I tell people this all the time, there's a bumper crop of actors every single year that are coming out of these MFA programs and people are trans transmuting from being theater to the West coast to be film, film actors coming back to New York to be theater actors. So it's all in motion. This is what makes the whole thing beautiful for me because it's not stayed in that regard. There's always change, always change. Earlier uh, in the, in the show, I mentioned that I want to talk about the, what, what I'm calling the hidden, design elements we all mm. know that good we, we know good acting when we and if we think about it i think we can we can sense great writing if we actually want to i have a feeling things like lighting um are a lot more important than most people would consciously register and so so talk to me when you look, for example, at uh, for a great lighting designer. I know there was an obituary of one who just passed away probably two, three months ago. And I read this obituary, a woman I'd never heard of, but she had done um, uh, dozens of big productions. And they described her talent for telling a story through the use of light, the different colors of light, the way the light projected adding drama in some scenes and sort of solitude or, or serenity in others. But talk to me in your words about a good lighting designer, a good costume designer. What are the things you look for? What are some of the other things I haven't mentioned that are just so critical to a great pr production? I have to tell you, uh, what I every design element, every single person who has a hand in the development of storytelling is absolutely critical. If you look at a production like Hamilton, you can't appreciate the lights mm. when you're not in the theater. You can't get that 
experience through the television screen. And a good design team, and let me tell you, Hamilton had an amazing design team. I remember I was sitting there, I've seen the show six times, and I was sitting there doing one of those times, and I remember I was tearing up. And I was tearing up not because there was something happening on stage that was you know, heartbreaking or whatever, although I did tear up for those kinds of things too. What made me tear up is that I saw all the design elements across the board, nine and a half, 10, lighting, costume, movement, acting, directing. It was just so many of these people came together and gave their best A game that of course it was going to be a hit because it was, everyone was telling the same story, mm. right? If you look at the set design, the set design needs to, you know, imbue the vision of what the director and the writer has in mind so that you can step into the world that they have created for us. Mm. Same thing with, with uh, sound design. I remember I had my first film, we had not had the sound added to the film. And when I tell you that it was empty, I mean, it was, it was empty. And that's when I realized how important sound design is because sound design gives, it, it gives you texture and it gives you a context. It gives you a space, a place, a time. All of those are supported by the sound. You hear a dog barking over here. Oh, you hear some chatter from the neighbors over there. Oh, you hear some drum beats of someone playing the drums down the street. All of those pieces come together to create the life of the piece. It is the thing that you experience in total. And when I tell you that every single person, if they're doing their job, you should not be aware that they're doing their job as well as they're doing. Because if the actors are acting their butts off, then you're not sitting there going, my God, they really are amazing actors, which is in the moment of this character who is going through what that character is going through. That's when that actor is doing great work, right? Oh. You're not sitting in there in Hamilton and watching, oh my God, look how those lights are changing. What does that mean? No, it, it is all <laughs> part of the experience that these creative folks have spent years honing so, so that they're all talking the same language and creating the same space. That's why the director and all the lighting and costume and set have long conversations about what it is that they're creating. And when they hit it out of the park, you as an audience members, all you know is you love that show. Oh my God, that was a great show. So a few times you've talked about uh, shows, uh, both past and in the case of uh, Thoughts of a Colored Man coming, that you know are gonna knock it out of the park, right? You feel there's all the elements that will suggest a great show and therefore a great response. Are you ever disappointed? Like you, you get really behind something and you're like, this is gonna be, the, and it just flops? Or, does that happen? Well, well let me say this. Um, success is measured in several different ways. There's economic success. Did it recoup? Did it make a profit? Did it make a big profit? Then there is, well, how was the quality of the piece? Did it win awards? Was it nominated for awards? You know, and if you are lucky, no one, no one, no one can say for, for a fact that any given show is going to win accolades from the critics and is gonna make a ton of money and be a runaway hit. It's not possible. I dare say that the people who were involved with Hamilton could not have foreseen how huge an impact that production had on our culture, our society, and particularly on theater. Mm -hmm. So for me, there are three things that I look for for a project. A, of course, is, no. Number one, it's great storytelling. But that aside, it has high artistic integrity. It's about underrepresented communities, and it has commercial viability, mm -hmm. right? So that's what I look at 
when I look at a piece, I send it through that prism and I understand and see what it is. Some, you know, I've, I've had some projects that have won beautiful awards, but didn't recoup. I've won a Tony for Porgy and Best. We didn't fully recoup our money from that show. Mm -hmm. Right. Then there was a little show called Vanya and Sonia and Masha and Spike, which was well, Chris Durang's best script, in my humble opinion. But it was a kind of a quirky show. And you, you may not look at that and go, oh, this is going to be a commercial success. But we recouped and we made a profit. Right. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I occasionally I think I got a check not many months ago from that production, if I'm not mistaken. So so success is, is measured in a variety of ways. For me, it's that it's going to be ex excellent from an artistic point of view. Critics or people will be able to look at that show and go, wow, that was really good. I can't control how many people come see the show because there are so many factors at play that will determine if it's a runaway hit, right? For me, word of mouth is one of those things. Um, people talk about, oh, you're gonna have it in the New York Times. Oh, you're gonna have a television ad. Oh, you're gonna... so let me tell you this. What's gonna sell tickets is when those women go back to their church and say, girl, let me tell you what I saw on Tuesday. I went to see this show called Ain't too proud about the temptation. Oh, you've got to go see that show. That is worth more money than you can possibly spend. Because when people start spreading the word of mouth, because now you have a reference that you trust, they'll come and see that show. It, I know when I was writing my book, uh, my publishing house told me reviews don't matter. That uh, there's no correlation between book sales and positive or negative or even absence of reviews. What does matter is um, podcasts, uh, word of mouth, to your point, uh, in-store, meaning Barnes & Noble-like promotions, Amazon rankings, those things really matter. Do reviews matter in theater these days? They do. They don't matter as much as they did, say, 20, 30, 40 years ago, um, because there was a time in, in Broadway where a, a Broadway critic can tank your show or make it a bestseller, like literally with a, a good or bad review. Now it's less so because we have so many more ways to your point where we communicate with one another. You know, we are getting messages through podcasts. Yes, we're seeing watching television commercials, but you know, we're also on Facebook, Twitter, and all the social media and, you know, word of mouth and radio. And so when you look at getting the word out, you really want to figure out who you think your target audience is and where do they live, mm. right? If it's a young crowd that you're looking for, 20-something, you know, Facebook tends to skew a little older. So that's probably not where you're going to spend your money. Mm -hmm. But to answer your question, the a great New York Times review can certainly help. Will it guarantee that you'll be a winner? No, it will not. Um, and it also will not mean that your show will close if they give you a mixed or tepid review. Because if people love the show, then people love the show, yeah. right? To, to sort of broadcast out to our friends, it's not just the people I run into in the supermarket, it's it's the thousands of people I have on social media. Exactly, exactly, exactly. One of my co-producers, um, um, the first post they did about being involved in this production, I think was in the within 48 hours, it had been viewed almost 2,000 times, right? And then there was the reshares that went after that and the reshares of those reshares. And that's how a profile of a project rises. So, you know, like any marketing thing, the first thing you got to get before people buy something is they have to be aware that it exists. Mm. Then, you know, all the rest of the things that move you from awareness to purchase have to happen. So um, we have to take another quick break. But when we're back, I actually want to 
go back to the question about what's coming down the pike, uh, not just in uh, your own production company, but, but some of the other things you're most excited about on Broadway as well as off Broadway. Most of our listeners are not here in New York. It'd be interesting to see if there are some other productions in other parts of the country that you think people should be paying attention to. So stay with us. You're listening to Tastemakers. We will be right back. We now return to Tastemakers with Pauline Brown on Sirius XM Stars. Welcome back to Tastemakers. This is Pauline Brown. I've been here this hour with Ron Simons. He's an award-winning producer. He's an actor. He's been involved in everything from documentary to television. Um, But we've been speaking mostly about what's happening on Broadway and what we have to look forward to on Broadway. I also want to ask him, though, because theater is everywhere, every town in America has some form of theater. What else should people be paying attention to that you're excited? To? What's what's on tour? Uh, what's maybe opening in other major theaters or theater districts around the world? Ron, what, what, what are you excited about? Well, obviously, I'm excited about the tour of Ain't Too Proud because that is my <laughs> fate. And I love her more than... Uh, than life itself. Okay, that's an exaggeration. But that production is so amazing. And the music, of course, is iconic, The Temptations. And it's going to be, I I predict it is going to be a major hit around the country because it's great theater and it's uplifting theater. And we, coming out of this COVID, we need to laugh and dance and sing and clap and bring feel joy and feel love And that is a fee. All of that is in Ain't Too Proud. And that's going to be in 50 different markets. So keep your eye open for Ain't Too Proud and definitely do not miss it when it comes. Because I think people who may not feel as comfortable yet getting on a plane, coming to New York, you know, spending money for a hotel and the food and they got to buy the tickets, they might actually rather opt to say, you know, what, I'm going to see it here in Tulsa because it's going to be at the Pantages and we can just go downtown, park our car go see the show and come right on back home. It's, and that's in the fall? That's this fall? Yeah, that's starting up this fall. Yeah, this is coming out. It's So many shows are, are coming out on tour. And I think that, you know, I would encourage people, if you really want to do a deep dive, you know, you can go to the Broadway League and spend some time uh, just Googling Broadway on tour. There's a company called uh, Broadway Across America. And if you look at Broadway across America, you know, you can find all of these shows that are going to be making their way around the country. And then you can pick which ones you want to see. Do you want to have a deep, you know, sort of philosophical play that you want to get into because you're really brainy? Or do you want to literally like just go and have a good time and laugh and sing? And and all of that's going to be on tour through Broadway across America and other touring companies. Okay. Do you go to London for inspiration? I go to London not for inspiration so much as to look at upcoming products that might be something that um, I might want to do or bring or help bring to Broadway. So because there's a lot going on in London and to and not just on the West End, you know, some of the most interesting stuff um, in London and New York are things that got their start off Broadway and not in the blind light of the West End or Broadway. So I go there because they do great theater and they are a discriminating set of audience members there. They do not, they do not play. So shows that really get their attention are, are lauded, 
do really well. For example, the most recent, um, the musical, which I missed when I was in London last, um, Six, which is coming to Broadway. You know, I'm, I've heard amazing things about it and it got its start in the UK and now it's coming to Broadway. So I go there and yes, I hope to be inspired anytime I go into the theater. But why I go to London is looking for product. Mm -hmm. um, I want to ask a question about money. I don't quite understand why, other than, I guess, the laws of supply and demand, but why Broadway tickets are so expensive. That's a very good question, Pauline. That is a very, and let me tell you why that is. The reason why that is, is because the unions require, are, the unions make sure that their members are well paid. And the unions are very clear. And let me tell you, I come from a family of unions because I come from Detroit and my whole family worked in the automotive industry. So I knew AFL, CIO, did for no clue what the letter stood for, but we were all about the union. Mm -hmm. um, and the unions here are also caring for their, their members. So they're very clear, not only about what you need to pay them, but making sure that no one does their job. If, for example, you see, you see a sandbag, you go, oh, that sandbag's not supposed to be on stage left. I'm just going to bring it over here to stage right. If someone sees you from the union, you will be interrupted. They may be rid up because what? you actually, That's not your job. That is Ted's job. Ted is the union. Do not touch the sandbags. <laughs> you will be reprimanded. So we would love to be able to have ticket sales, you know, for $45, $50, you know, at the top end. But the fact of the matter is there is no world in which with the current structure and cost fees for not, and it's not just the unions too, you know, it's all about, you know, we have to pay the theater, you know, we have to pay everything that you see comes at a cost from the person who's showing you where you're going to sit you know, to the people you don't even see backstage, everyone you see on stage, the orchestra in the pit or upstairs, all of that costs money, which is why a production, a musical can cost $17 million. Well, if you want to recoup $17 million, you can't sell tickets for $35, $45, unless that show's going to be running for the next 25 years. And investors are not going to want to wait 25 years to get their money back. They want to see their money within, oh yeah, maybe two, maybe three, we'll see. So yeah, it's just, and that is why we can't run our shows with 30% capacity. Cause at some point people were saying, oh, well, we'll just you know, sell every third seat. Economically, there is no model where that makes sense. We, couldn't, we wouldn't be able to stay open more than a couple of weeks and we would lose money while we were running. Now, based on what you're saying and I'm putting my business hat back on, I'm thinking most investors in theater uh, are not making money. They're doing it for other purposes. A little bit like sports teams. I mean, I guess recently franchises have, have gone up when they resell, but in terms of actually recouping operating costs, really tough, right? In the yeah. sports world. Um, is, that, is that fair to say? Would, uh, or, or do you think that with the kind of global marketing that happens and the sophistication and the number of, the that the number of tourists that come through, that you, it's fair to expect a quality production to give a good return to its investors? This is, this is a very good question. I get asked this all the time from potential investors. And I tell them, I said, if you want a really great return on your investment, don't give me your money. <laughs> I know a woman here in New York. I got a, a guy out in the West Coast. They can give you 10 to 15% per annum, pretty much guaranteed year in, year out. I said, but if you care about the kinds of stories mm -hmm. that you feel are important, or you care about changing the world one project at a time, which is my mission, then come talk to me. Because 
what I encourage people to do is look at investing, particularly in Broadway, in the same way they look at patronage. You want to write a check for $25,000 to the symphony. Great. Are you expecting them to send you a, 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 an investment return back, uh, some profit at the end of the year? No. In 10 years? No. You support them. You give them that money because you believe in the work that they're doing and you care about that particular medium. And so if you are an investor in Broadway, yes, you can get your money back. You might not get your money back, in which case then you have a tax deduction. But unlike giving your money to the symphony, you might actually get the back money back and you might actually make a profit. Mm -hmm. But the most important thing that I say people should do is look at the stories that mean something to you. Because then no matter what happens, no matter how much money that show returns, you will know that you gave your money in support of the stories that, that are important to you as that individual, whether that's women's rights or whether that's diversity in terms of, you know, uh, race, in terms of gender, in terms of um, age, in terms of so many things. Do storytelling because storytelling is the most powerful agent of change on the planet. And you can be a part of that agent of change on Broadway. Anyone can invest in Broadway. Anyone. So if any of you are out there saying, what does it mean to invest in Broadway? How would I do? Give me a ring. It's www.simonsaysentertainment.com or you can send an email to info at simonsaysentertainment.com because we need people who care about changing the world. That's what my job is. Not all producers, but my job is to change the world one play at a time. Well, you are certainly changing uh, not only the world of theater, but the world for all the people who go to your theaters. And I can tell you two outlets that I'm going to be investing in in the form of uh, a few tickets is Ain't Too Proud when it's on tour coming my way and Thoughts of a Colored Man when it gets to Broadway. I can't wait. And I just can't wait to be back in that in that theater um, with the, you know, the, the curtains uh, drawn and with the lights on and with those great voices singing or projecting. Thank you so much for, for staying with this, this craft, uh, even though notwithstanding the really, really rough year that uh, particularly your field has had. And thank, thank you, you, thank you for your inspiration and for so generously coming on the show today. No, thank you, it's been great. And please everyone do support local theater, support tours because the only way we can survive is by your support. Yeah, and it's worth it. Uh, <laughs> thank you, as always, to Ciara Kayser, my producer, and to Mark Aflalo, our sound engineer. You've been listening to Tastemaker. I look forward to reconnecting next week. <laughs>